is a bloody disgusting podcast network. back to horror queers we're talking 80s mullets we're talking practical effects and we're talking child murder and i'm joe and i'm trace and we're talking really awkward date rape oh that was so (laughs) weird and very unexpected i was not warned and i didn't care for it it's so funny i actually i've seen this this is probably the fourth or fifth time i've seen this movie and i've seen it on the big screen I knew that scene was in there, but I watching it last night, I guess maybe because I'm more woke. Ugh. Ugh. I know. But like, I was like, oh, this is A, going on a very long time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> B, it's very uncomfortable. But you know what? He has a comeuppance. And she looks like an inflatable sex doll. So, <laughs> Trace, what are we talking about? We're talking about The Blob today, everybody. And we are talking the Chuck Russell 1988 The Blob, not the Steve McQueen is 28 but looks 40 1958 The Blob. <laughs> so the one that's in color uh is the original one in color they, it is in color okay, oh, wait. okay here's the funny thing the reason I, I was shocked i was like is this like a post-colorized version of this movie is because and listeners correct me if i'm wrong or our guests might want to chime in but well, well, well hold on. actually right, let me introduce the guest <laughs> <laughs> we have a special guest on here today who is a blob fanatic um ladies and gentlemen and everyone in between she is one of the hardest working freelancers working today with mm-hmm. bylines at fangoria consequence of sound slash film daily dead vulture birth movies death and of course bloody disgusting where she makes up roughly 80 percent of the articles that appear on that website mm-hmm Please welcome Megan Navarro. Hi, guys. Hi. (laughs) That was one hell of an intro. Thank you. Oh, my God. You're welcome. I mean, geez, lady, cut down on the publications and we'll be able to get through it faster. I know, right? (laughs) (laughs) I texted her today and I was like, you're writing so much. And she's like, I love money. And don't we all? (laughs) Yes. Money and horror. It's like hand in hand. Welcome to the podcast where we're not paying you to come and chat with us for 90 (laughs) minutes. It's okay. You uh, bribe me with blob talk. Yes. For, so we, we sent you, as we do all of our guests, a list of like a certain amount of films that we have available to cover. And you were like, uh, the blob. If you don't put me in the blob, I will consider you not a friend. <laughs> yeah, I threatened Fair. bodily harm. I think that was like the polite way <laughs> of putting it. Yes. <laughs> what is what, what is this? What What is your connection with this film that makes you love it so? I guess really it's a long-winded story basically where I used to go to the video store with my dad every weekend. Like he would peruse the new release wall and I would just get drawn to the horror section and the fantasy section because it had monsters. I don't know why I was obsessed with monsters, but you know, so he basically inappropriately probably let me pick out whatever I wanted. And like, if you've seen the cover box, the VHS Mm -hmm. cover box, like, it's kind of creepy. It's like got the face, you know, it's Paul getting eaten. Yeah. So anyway, I watched it and I fell in love because who wouldn't, I guess, love? How could you not? Yeah, how could you not? And the credits are pink. And so it's like, it's a girly (laughs) horror, right? And yeah, and so it's one of those movies that I've just like, loved it as a child. And then the more you watch it, it holds up like there's so many different layers between, you know, when you watch as a kid versus as an adult. It's really so I know exactly what you're talking about. Because I saw this, I wasn't allowed to see this as a kid. So I didn't see this actually until probably my mid 20s. But I remember seeing the box at Blockbuster 
all the time because yeah, it's the, the cover is Paul like reaching for Meg like with the blob all over him. It is terrifying and disgusting, but it really leaves an impression. And that's what those VHS boxes did back then, you know? Yes. Mm, I miss old movies. So like old movie posters, I mean. Before we go any further, I want to go back to what I was saying. So okay. I don't know if y'all will know this or not, but in Greece, you know the song when uh, Dan- John Travolta like does the Stranded at the Drive-In Theater? And I think, I think they are watching The Blob at the Drive-In Theater, but I remember it being black and white, and so I thought, oh shit, I'm watching some post-colorized version of this movie. No, it's always been in color. Hmm. I could not tell you what movie they were watching in Greece. Well, what good are y'all? <laughs> No, I feel the exact same way. Megan, he does this all the time. <laughs> okay, listeners, if you are a musical <laughs> fan and you've seen the movie Grease, let me know if I'm crazy or not. Or just tell him he's crazy. Yeah, just do that. Uh, it's more fun for all of us. It's fine. Anyway, so welcome, Megan. We're happy to have you in our happy home. And I guess we'll just dive into it. Mm-hmm. Trace, tell us everything about this remake. Yes. Well, I mean, that, that'll probably be discussion in and of itself. Now, Joe, this was your first time seeing it, right? Literally watched it for the first time last night. (gasps) That's exciting. It was almost daunting. I've been building up to it all week because I've been super excited, but I knew I wouldn't be able to get to it until last night. I built it up way, way too much, but the film still totally delivered. (laughs) That's what I was worried about, though, because you have a tendency to build things up, especially if there's hype around a movie. This Mm -hmm. movie is hyped. How did you receive it? I definitely loved it. I mean, I messaged you offline, Mm -hmm. Trace, that I think there's a slight leg leading up to the climax in the third act, but we can talk about it. I mean, it's not like I think it's bad. I just think, oh, this isn't comparable to watching someone get sucked down a kitchen sink or a woman get crushed in a payphone. I get that. That makes sense. Um, You're wrong, but yeah, that's totally fine. (laughs) Jay, what else is now? <laughs> and then, so I, I actually watched the original Blob for the first time last night, so I double-featured the two. Um, remake's better, which is not something you can say often. But I feel like it gets said a lot about this film. It's like The Thing and The Blob and maybe The Fly. No, it, it's it's those three, for sure. It's those 80s remakes, and it's like the three The Blank movies, all better than the original. Which is interesting, because it's like... They were all 50s movies, and mm-hmm. then 30 years later, the remake is superior. Is there, like, some kind of 30-year streak? We should start looking at remaking <sighs> 90s movies now. Oh, my God. Yes, please. <laughs> also, though, what's interesting, because The Thing and The Fly both take... Well, I haven't seen the original The Thing, so I don't know if it's, like, schlocky or campy or cheesy. I would imagine it is, but not going to commit to it. But <laughs> The Thing and The Fly take properties and make them like very serious remakes like horror scary like it's gory but like terrifying remakes whereas this one takes a campy 50s movie and kind of embraces the camp embraces the humor but still is like kind of terrifying yeah i wouldn't say that this is campy i would definitely say that it's a horror comedy but it's a dark horror comedy Mm -hmm. i agree I mean, that was the big thing. Like, that's how people got me hyped for this, as they said, the practical effects are out of this world. (laughs) (laughs) But it's tank. Yeah. And then the other big selling feature is that this is mean. This movie is mean. So I will confess, I kind of wish I hadn't waited quite so long, because A, the box art for the new Scream Factory release clearly tells you who the final two are. So it was no surprise to me when Paul dies. Spoilers. (laughs) But, I mean, uh, 
Yeah. Also, like, I knew that one of those kids was going to die. Because people always say that an American horror film is mean when they kill a child. And you knew which kid it was going to be because he was a shithead the entire time <laughs> listening to fucking headphones in the movie theater. I mean, I won't lie. I secretly hope that both of the children were going to die. <laughs> um, I think Meg's brother's okay. He's just oh, he's kind of fine. Like it's just, this seemed like the kind of film that wasn't going to pull any punches. So mm-hmm. I actually thought, you know what? We could lose both kids in this movie. It could happen. I mean, neither one of them serves much of a purpose other than to get Meg to the theater. True. Yeah. Okay. Well, let, let's go into release because um, in case y'all don't know or listeners don't know, this movie was a huge flop. Like bombed hard at the box office in the summer of 1988. And I want to talk about Chuck Russell's reasoning why. So mm-hmm. this was released August 5th, 1988 by TriStar Pictures. We are looking at a runtime of 95 minutes and a budget of $19 million, which that would be just over $40 million today. Still seems low for what we get. It does, but $9 million of that $19 million went to the effects. Mm-hmm. So almost half your budget, which, I mean, can you imagine that happening today? <laughs> I mean... Can you say Marvel? Yeah, but it's like CG. Yeah. Green screen. I imagine this movie would actually be way more expensive to make nowadays because you, well, maybe not. Maybe you just spend $5 million and have really terrible I Frankenstein CGI or something. That's probably what would happen. Again, Joe and I talk about this a lot. I, I welcome remakes. By all means, if you want to take tackle a property that I love and do something with it, be it the same thing or different, I'll watch it. I'm going to be open to it. But... Like the thing, if you take a movie known for its practical effects and you remake it with CGI, right? Why would why? why that's your why is why are you doing this? You're asking to be hurt because fandoms will come after you for that. Like <laughs> mm-hmm. that is an unforgivable sin to horror fans. So this opened in the number nine slot with two point six million dollars, and it went on to gross eight point two million dollars, less than half of its budget. That sucks. It does. So basically, uh, Chuck Russell said. Maybe it was a mistake to do a remake of The Blob with a sense of humor. I thought it would be an entertaining interpretation. Unfortunately, it was released late in a very hectic summer filled with big films, and it didn't have a particularly good ad campaign. Did y'all get a chance to watch the trailer for this before you started watching it? Uh, or afterwards? The trailer? No. I did watch some of the, the special features on that Scream Factory disc, though. Mm-hmm. I did, too. Well, I think the trailer's actually really good. But as far as these, as these big films that were coming out... Let me just t- travel all back in time to 1988 really quick. <laughs> so May, May 1988, we've got Friday the 13th, Part 7, The New Blood. Ooh, heavy hitter. <laughs> <laughs> Crocodile Dundee 2, <laughs> Rambo 3, Killer Clowns from Outer Space, and Maniac Cop. Oh, and Willow, but I think that was a flop. June, we have Big. That was big. Yeah. That, that was big. <laughs> um, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Oh, that was huge. Coming to America. Yeah. That was also huge. Poltergeist 3. <laughs> flatline. What's the sound for flatline? Waxwork. Oh, I love that movie too, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it did like nothing. Yeah, it's not. Uh, not and Funny thing. Farm. July, we have Die Hard, A Fish Called Wanda. Yep. Cocktail. Mm-hmm. And then these two aren't big, but I just thought they were notable. Short Circuit 2. Uh, Johnny <laughs> Five's Alive. And monkey shines. Oh yeah, no. <laughs> but but then, but then this is your first week of August. It's hard for me to go back there and be like, what was it like? Like, because if the marketing campaign sucked, then that means either a people weren't seeing the trailer anywhere, they weren't seeing posters for it, or that's I'm pretty sure what he meant because one of the special features, like one of the interviews on that Scream Factory release, was talking about how 
there was a changing of the guard as far mm-hmm. as the studio execs. So mm. that lapse kind of meant that this movie fell through the cracks. They didn't push yeah. it. So that Nobody makes sense. Nobody gave a shit about it. Like, I don't think it was the marketing as in the trailer. I'm thinking it's the marketing as in, like, they didn't promote it. Yeah, like the strategy behind it. Yeah. Well, the reception for the film was fine. It wasn't great. Again, with older movies, it's hard with Rotten Tomatoes because so many of these reviews are from, like, you know, modern critics. But Mm -hmm. we're looking at a 60% on Rotten Tomatoes with an average score of 5.76 out of 10 um, based on 25 reviews. But your letterbox score is 7 out of 10 from users. So despite it flopping and despite Janet Maslin from the New York Times saying... For reasons having nothing to do with merit, the 1958 film earned a place in history. The remake, enterprising as it is, won't do the same. Fuck you, Janet Maslin. (laughs) What does Janet know? (laughs) I mean, I do feel like that's an interesting perspective to have because it suggests that people disregarded remakes even way back in 1988. I would agree with you. And the, the the complaints lobbied against this film being that, oh, it's just a gorier version are the same things that were lobbied against the thing. But. Which also flopped. Which did flop. But then here's my question. What is the anomaly that is the fly? Uh, I think it's perceived as a smarter film. And we'll talk about this one day if we get to it. But, you know, people really like cerebral 80s Cronenberg. That's him hitting his peak. I also think that came at the right time. Like, that was 86. That was peak practical effect, you know, of the decade. Whereas this was winding down. Like, once... Heading into the 90s. Right. And that's where horror started to... Like, people's interest started to drop. And then it started to get shit on for the whole um, direct-to-video era. But I think that The Fly won out because... One, the the effects, it was peak heyday for it. Whereas The Blob was at the tail end, it wasn't promoted. The Thing was, like, right after E.T. Well, that sucks. So imagine if this had just come out two years earlier, you know? Right. So the director of this film is Chuck Russell, which, okay, I didn't know some of this shit. His directing credits, so Dreamscape, which I knew. But then The Mask with Jim Carrey, Eraser Mm -hmm. with Arnold Schwarzenegger, Bless the Child with Kim Basinger and Christina Ricci. (laughs) And The Scorpion King with The Rock. And of course, he also co-wrote Nightmare on Elm Street 3 with Frank Darabont, who also co-wrote this movie. Yes. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize Frank Darabont also co- uh, He also wrote The Fly 2. Hmm. And then, of course, Shawshank Redemption, The Green Mile, and The Mist, because he's a Stephen King nut. Yeah. But yeah, so uh, maybe if, if y'all haven't seen this movie, not y'all, obviously, but listeners, it's the same team from Nightmare on Elm Street 3, and it pays off in spades. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Joe, take us away. Okay, so we open on the abandoned town of Arborville, California, and it is completely devoid of people. But it's only because they're all at the football game, where Jacques Paul Taylor, that's not Jacques as in the French, that's as in he is a football (laughs) Jacques Paul Taylor. (laughs) I do love, too, that the last shot, because it it takes you through, it does the overhead shot of the town, which is very, like, chapter one, where they do the overhead shot of Derry, like, it it looks like they ripped it right off of this, this town. We just go, like, cut to, like, a bunch of different shots, but the last shot that we see when the director's credit goes over is the cemetery. Mm-hmm. Hint, hint. <laughs> People will die. <laughs> yeah. So, Paul Taylor, who's played by Donovan Leach, is using his good timing to ask out hot cheerleader Meg, played by Shawnee Smith, and he wants to take her out on a date that night. Do y'all think she ages? Because she looks the exact same. She really does. 
I mean, whatever she's doing, it's working. <laughs> Except for the hair. Should we start talking about the hair now? Clear- yeah. <laughs> well, the hair <laughs> is across the board bad. Hers is clear extensions. And poor, yeah, mullet man there. Kevin Dillon, man. I will confess, I have never found any of the Dillon brothers attractive, ever. And that is doubly so for whatever Kevin Dillon is doing in this movie. Apparently Chuck Russell, like, forced that mullet on him. Ooh. And Ooh. Kevin Dillon has not forgiven him to this day. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like when people go revisit that movie, oh, and his mullet. Yeah. So I actually have a genuine question, though. So knowing that Kevin Dillon does essentially become the co-hero of this film, mm-hmm. do y'all find his performance particularly compelling because i'm not gonna lie i actually do kind of prefer donovan leach's paul i like it i do like it i mean for what they're going for it works like i don't know Mm -hmm. that he's necessarily acting versus just (laughs) being i'm like my normal personality but you know the whole thing that i really love about the blob especially like as as an adult looking at it is It really talks about, like, the human condition and empathy. Like, there's a level playing field across the board. You know, nobody, whether you're a date rapist or his poor victim or you're a child or you're, like, the kindly sheriff who's, you know, just trying to get a date. date. Yeah, like, you're gonna (laughs) die. It doesn't matter who you are. And he's, like, the outcast that has a hard life. Like, they kind of hint at his home life and nobody gives a shit about him. And so, like, it kind of works. I have on his introduction, I have Brian broods on a branch. Because <laughs> we're introduced to him on a tree. I agree. One thing that this, and I, I won't talk about the original too much, because honestly, like, there's not much. Like, the basic outline of the plot is pretty much the same, uh, with the exception of the finale. The original takes place in the diner as opposed to the church. Yeah. Right. But one thing that, because the female lead, uh, who, oh, God, I don't remember what her name is, but in the original, is really just there to kind of follow Steve McQueen around and go get a puppy. Yes, exactly. Cry over this fucking puppy, which, by the way, I think it's killed. We never see it again. <laughs> I thought it just ran off. Oh, maybe it does. Whatever. It doesn't matter. I'm not really sure. So I went to doesthedogdie.com, and six people said it does die, but then the explanation said that apparently there was a throwaway line where someone says, I saw the dog run off. So, <laughs> hmm. I don't know. It's not conclusive. Yeah. Anyway, so Paul is clearly meant to be your Steve McQueen character in this movie, but obviously when he dies, that role is gone. Meg is the Steve McQueen. I think she was always intended to be. Exactly. Like, they give Brian some of the stuff, but what I love about this film is even for the the late 80s, they make Meg such an admirable and take charge and proactive character that it's Mm -hmm. hard not to be enthralled by everything she's doing. Yep. Yeah, and if you listen to the audio commentary, Chuck Russell spends a lot of time talking about how they deliberately set up this introduction as a misdirect for people who are not only aware of the original blob, but also just to reinforce this idea that you think you're going to get Paul and Meg, and then when they pull the rug out from under you, they basically wanted to do what you just said, Megan, which is to suggest, like, everybody is at risk in this film. Anybody could die at any point. And this is the thing I noticed, too. So the original film is 82 minutes long. This one is, like, 95, so 13 minutes longer. The first scene of the original is the meteor crashing as... You know, the the two leads are making out in their car, and then the old man gets the blob. That's the first scene. In this movie, in the remake, that happens at minute 13, 
Whereas before that, we get all this character development meeting the entire town. Mm-hmm. And so this one actually does a better job establishing its characters than the original did. And it spends its extra 13 minutes of runtime in the beginning of the movie. I really appreciated the way that this introduction is set up. Despite knowing that Flag, the Kevin Dillon character, becomes the hero, mm-hmm. I really appreciated the fact that we're getting this kind of trio focus. And for a little while, I had actually kind of hoped that we were going to have these two men and a woman be the heroes, and then maybe Paul would die much later into the film. Like a hero death? A little bit. I mean, I think this is ultimately more effective because it is so startling that Paul is the second death in this movie. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I don't disagree with you. I think that Paul is actually a very compelling character. Like, he's very likable. He's the most attractive, too. Yeah, he's also conventionally attractive. And, you know, you look at him and Shawnee Smith together and you think, yeah, they're, like, no. super hot. Obviously, they should get together. There is no conventionally. He, he just is attractive. <laughs> <laughs> but going back to whether Kevin Dillon is effective or not, I think that her, Shawnee Smith's chemistry is way better with him than it is with Donovan Leach. I mean, like, he's the token yeah. attractive, you know, that's the pairing that should work based on their characters. But... There's something about the way she plays off of Kevin that's just much more engrossing and riveting for me. I think, with the exception of the condom subplot, (laughs) the Meg and Paul thing is very reminiscent of a romance in the 50s. It's safe, it's tame, it's a little milk toast. And so Paul dying and her moving on to Brian, which is a bit more feisty, that's when you see the evolution of the 50s to the 80s. Or if we're talking Pleasantville terms, going from black and white to color. Yeah. Oh, so that would work so much better if the original was in black and white now. I know, right? <laughs> oh my god. If the prologue of this film was in black and white, and then like once the meteor crash, or once Paul died and switched to color, that'd be cool too. So you're thinking about Night of the Creeps? Yeah, sure. Because <laughs> that's literally a do. black and white opening, and then when a meteor strike hits. Yes. <laughs> yes, you color. are correct. <laughs> that, okay, honestly, that those two, this and Night of the Creeps, that's your double feature right there. Oh my god, that'd be a great double feature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so after we get Paul and Meg with their meet-cute on the football field, we're introduced to, I'm going to call him Flag throughout the entire movie. Is That's that okay? Fine. Yeah. Okay. So we're introduced to Flag. Yeah, he crashes his bike trying to make a bridge jump, Chekhov's bridge jump, oh, yeah. on his motorcycle. And he, I like the way that this is cut so that we see him driving and we get the cheers from everybody in the football stands. And then instead he crashes and it's just the local hobo can man who is played by Billy Beck and his dog who are cheering him on. <laughs> Trace, are you glad that the dog doesn't die? Yeah, I'm good. I'm happy. I was like, that dog is cute. I don't want him to die. As mean as this movie is, it's kind of surprising that it doesn't. But we do get a few dead rats. They actually had built special effects to do a squirrel. Like a squirrel would come down from the tree and investigate the blob and get eaten. And so it was going to be some like grizzly squirrel death. And then they cut it. (gasps) That just sounds like wasted money. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I mean, at least it's a squirrel. So it's not big. But yeah. Yeah. But they actually filmed this? I don't know. Filmed it or not, I just okay. know that they had built the effects for it, and so they either never filmed it or they they did cut it, and the footage is lost somewhere. Interesting. Also random. So I, I'm I'm so used to movies filming like at least a year in advance. This movie began production in January of 1990. Sorry, 1990 in January of 1988, and came out in August of 88. It's insane with these effects too. You know, 
But Chuck Russell, if you, again, if you listen to his audio commentaries of the interviews, he talked about how valuable storyboarding was. He mm. actually thinks that he wouldn't have been able to make the movie had he not storyboarded as carefully as he did, because then he knew exactly what the final shot would look like and what they would have to do to achieve it in terms of special effects. That's nice. Also, he just shot Nightmare on Elm Street 3, so he's right. well-versed in special effect movies. And shooting it on the cheap and very quickly. Yes. I'm sitting here thinking, well, that was like five years before this, but that was 87. So that makes sense. Yeah, I know. I keep thinking the same thing. I'm like, oh, wasn't Nightmare 3 like five, six years before? <laughs> no. yeah. Well, that's that, that's the thing, though. I, I frequently forget that the first Nightmare came out in 84, 84 which yeah. is like way after that slasher boom, you know? It's the mm-hmm. end of it, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's, I think, why it's so successful in part is because at that point, people had had their fill of Graduation Day and all the Final Exam. 13 knockoffs and that yeah. kind of shit. They were like, I'm ready for something different. Oh, hey, Freddy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. So at this point, we are introduced to Sheriff Herb Geller, who is played by Jeffrey DeMunn. I love him. I love that this movie is filled with fucking character actors. Mm-hmm. That's actually another credit to Chuck Russell. He's a big actor director, so... He comes from a theater background, so he's actually very well-versed in how to work with actors, but he also picked a bunch of these people for their improv and comedy skills, because that's what his background is in. So we're introduced to the sheriff, and he's basically just trying to get a date with the local waitress, Fran, who is played by the delightfully named Candy Clark. Mm. Why don't we name our, our girls Candy anymore? She is a horror queers veteran coming from Cherry Falls. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> well, I don't know if you remember this, but she's Brittany Murphy's mom. and she's... I was going to say, she's the one who gets gang raped? <laughs> no, 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 no. Happy no. memories. The killer's mom gets gang raped. Her mom's the one who's like trying to keep the secret, but she's like a really bad actor. Oh, she's like, she's really the secret bad drunk. Yeah, right. she's the drunk the whole time. Okay. I mean, I loved her in this movie. She's she's one of those people where she shows up and you just immediately fall in love with her and you want nothing bad to happen to her. Yeah. So, of course. She's brutally killed in this no, movie. No, honestly, I think her death is the the hardest one for me to watch. Because it's like, they, they set up this romance between her and Herb, and you're just like, yay! And they are both knocked out in one scene. Mm-hmm. And with no fanfare at all. I love that, though, because she's, like, the thing about these characters is none of them are behaving dumbly. You know, they're no. all doing, you know, Paul, immediately his first instinct is to go call the cops, and that's what dooms him. Her instinct mm-hmm. is to go call the cops, and that dooms her. That's what dooms her. <laughs> so, like, don't call moral... the cops, people. <laughs> yeah. Well, to be fair, she should have she gone beyond the phone booth right outside the diner. That, that was her mistake. But to be fair... What the fuck are they dealing with? You know? Yeah, they don't know. <laughs> like, this is not a slasher. We know, you know, Garden Tool Massacre in the movie showed us. You just keep running, but you don't know when it's like an inside out vampiric stomach, basically. <laughs> yeah, that keeps getting bigger. Right. <laughs> Sheriff Herb is also not a fan of Flag because he is, well, he's more or less looking forward to arresting him now that he has become an adult. And at this point, Flag hits the garage so that he can borrow a ratchet set from Moss Woodley, played by Bo Billingsley, and he wants to go and fix his bike. So let's cut to the drugstore where we meet Paul's dumbass friend Scott, played by Ricky Paul Golden, who is buying condoms in front of Reverend Meeker, played by Del Close, and the pharmacist Art LaFleur. And then he, of course, is 
ashamed to be buying condoms in front of adults, so he blames it on Paul, and this becomes problematic later when Paul arrives to pick up Meg and realizes that the pharmacist is, of course, her dad. Ha ha. This is a, I don't know if it's an urban legend or a joke that was passed, because I'd heard this story of this bef- way before I saw this movie. So I don't know if there was like a like a joke that would always happen where it's like, oh, like you buy condoms from a pharmacist, but the pharmacist is the girl's dad, blah, blah, blah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. I think like Chuck Russell said that this was like a personal story of his that he wove into. Like he knew somebody. So maybe it is an urban legend or maybe I don't know. Hmm. He does actually talk about a number of urban legends. This entire, these opening scenes are all based on urban legends. So the idea of a hobo who lives in the woods who finds something, people on a date who hit a man with their car, and I think this as well. Hmm. Well, there we yeah. go. Yeah, again, he wanted to play to the idea that you know what's happening and then subvert that. Which, to be fair, this movie does a lot. Yep. Yeah, especially in the beginning. Mm-hmm. As night falls, we get a meteor crash in the woods in front of Canman, and he investigates by poking at the goo that he finds with a stick, and it promptly attacks him. And then we get a delightful smash cut to Meg's younger brother, Kevin, who is played by Michael Kenworthy, who is sucking up Jello. <laughs> I made a note of that. That was I, I, I'm a sucker for cuts like that. We talked about it when we did um, Devil's Rejection 3 from Hell for Patreon, when, um, oh, Sid Haig goes to pee, and then it cuts to, like, coffee being poured in a cup. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> it's I just love those clever funny little cuts yeah match on action can be used really efficiently like back in the day it used to just be to connote okay if somebody's opening a door they're coming out on the other side but i like it when directors use it for comedy as well because it's it's yeah really effective did mm-hmm. you watch game of thrones yeah unfortunately w- which season was it when um theon was being held by the flayed house and there was the oh. cut to the sausage eating yes, yes that, that's yes, like yes, season three yes. Three I think or four, four or five. Or four yeah. or five. Yeah. Yeah. See, I like that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a gallows humor that really pays off, especially in horror, but I guess also for Game of Thrones because that was a dark show too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, torture. <laughs> yep. Kevin is hanging out with his friend Eddie, played by Douglas Emerson, and they are planning to catch a horror movie later that night. We will see some of that later. Ah, uh, yes. I. Even the description, because they mentioned the hockey mask. And it's like, I mean, again, think about it. Two months or three months before this movie came out, Friday the 13th Part 7 was released. So I just love that they're already, like, making jokes at that franchise's expense. Well, when is Student Bodies come out? Is it around this time or is it before? 89, yeah. Okay, so it's after this. Okay. And if people don't know, that's a slasher, like a mock slasher. It's like a pre-scary movie, scary movie. It's high (laughs) camp. Very, yes. very over the top. Mm-hmm. I should watch it one day. You should. Ever, <laughs> you should. I can't talk <laughs> about a scene, but it cracks me up, and I just want everybody to see it just for the scene where, like, the killer is literally spying on people from behind a water cooler. So his face is magnified, <laughs> and they still don't see him, and <laughs> you're just dying laughing. That sounds amazing. <sighs> So Flag ends up coming across Can Man attempting to chop off his own hand in the woods. I missed it on the first watch, and then when I was watching it with the audio commentary today, I saw that actually even as he tries to chop it, because initially I was like, oh, Flag should just let him do that because then yeah. this old man's not going to oh, die. Oh, so you missed the blob crawling up his wound? Yeah, because <laughs> that is fucking terrifying. Well, this is the first moment of, like, the effects work that we get. Like, you know, we, we get the the blob, you know, getting on his hand. But this, when when the axe, like, meets wrist, mm-hmm. that's when you're first like, oh, this is the movie we're in for. Yeah. 
it's going to be gnarly. <laughs> <laughs> so Flag ends up chasing Canman into the road where he is then hit by Paul and Meg while they are on their date. The trio drives him to the hospital, and this is our, our first moment that we understand that Meg and Flag are going to hit it off, as she actually observes him having this tender moment with the Canman before the Canman is taken away. And I think it helps her to understand that, oh, this guy is actually not a bad guy. He's not the bad dude that everyone in town thinks he is. Right. He's a butch softy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, honestly, okay, so we made fun of the mullet. Can we also talk about how fucking youthful the faces are on Kevin Dillon and Donovan Leach? Because they look like babies. Like, the skin, it, they look like man-children faces to me. Which is good for high school. Like, mm-hmm. I we revisited the original Blob, and Steve McQueen, like, oh. there's one part where, like, he's in a shadow, and I thought for a second, that they had replaced him with, like, a 50-year-old double. No, no, no. And I'm like, no, "No, it's Steve McQueen. So I thought the same thing. So I I didn't realize it was Steve McQueen's acting debut. He is playing a teenager, so let's say 17 or 18 years old. Mm -hmm. When he filmed it, he was 28. Right. That's (laughs) normal-ish. Ish, Ish, yeah. He looks 40 or 50. Like, I am not Like, what has he been smoking since he was five? I don't know. But he does not look 28, much less 18. No, and his lady love, I think, is only 25. Like, she's three years younger than him. Yes, she's an actress from the Andy Griffith show. That's what she's most known for. But yeah, like, she she looks Does she age. look age appropriate? Yes. <laughs> I mean, again, more Which so than Which just makes him. the whole thing creepier than it's Very like, much so. You know, that opening scene is on Lover's Lane, and it's like, what is she doing? Is this a sex trafficking thing? Why is she kissing her father's best friend? In the 50s, I'm sure that that's not what they were thinking. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you watch it now, and you are. Oh, well, yeah, absolutely. Uh, things that have not aged well. Unlike this film, which has aged very well. Mm-hmm. So Flag is like, cool, bye, I'm out of here. And that leaves Paul and Meg to fill out a bunch of paperwork. As he gets up to get her a drink, he observes something odd happening under Canman's blankets. And when the doctor... Oh, wait, 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 pause. <laughs> yes. Really quick, with the kids, you forgot to mention Chekhov's stuck zipper in the jacket. Oh my god. <laughs> well, if we're going to list off all of those, then we also didn't mention the snow truck when mm-hmm. Brian Flagg was picking up his wrenches. Like, there yes. is so many cause and effect payoffs in this movie. It's insane. Not, like, not, no stern, like stone is left unturned in this thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's become a thing for us now. I think we started a couple weeks ago where we started mentioning all the Chekhov's things. Oh, with the boy next door. Yeah. And I think that's just what we're going to do now. We're just going to find that <laughs> all the time. <laughs> and that is one, and that is one. Yeah, the, this is full of them. Yeah. And just to clarify to listeners, we're gently mocking, but also this is called good screenwriting. You're setting things up so that if people are paying attention, they will know that it's going to pay off a little bit later. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not a bad thing. You can do these things well, but you can also do them lazily, like The Boy Next Door. Whereas in this movie, it's, it's well done. Yes. Yeah. I do love the fact that Moss is actually using the snow truck to keep beer in. A man after my own heart. I think... The way you do these well is when when you watch it when the first appearance happens, you're not like, well, that's going to come back later. Right. Mm -hmm. You don't think that about things in this movie, whereas in The Boy Next Door, you're like, oh, (laughs) that's going to come back later. (laughs) How are these fuck me pumps going to play into the climax of this movie? (laughs) 
Oh, dear. So, yes, so Paul notices that there is something odd happening under the blankets, and when the doctor, played by Jack Nance, who I was delighted to see, because it always takes me back to the pilot episode of Twin Peaks when he calls and he goes, She's dead! (laughs) Trace doesn't watch Twin Peaks, obviously. I kind of feel like you would hate it. I've seen the first, I have the the whole series on Blu-ray. I've seen the first season and a half. And um, I think it's really boring and confusing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I can't with you. <laughs> Don't hate me. Look, I, try- I tried. It's a soap opera, and I get it. I was literally watching that. Like, these episodes are so long. It doesn't make any sense. It is so boring. Oh, my God. But maybe I'll give it a chance again. Who knows? Well, I can't wait until we get to Mulholland Drive, then. <laughs> I like Mulholland Drive. But it's a two-and-a-half-hour movie versus fucking... Sorry. Go ahead. Continue. Versus a TV show? Yes. yes. Okay, so the Doctor arrives, and at this point, we discover that the entire bottom half of Can Man has turned into liquefied goop. This is the big, like, okay, so you get your taste with the the wrist, but then Mm -hmm. this is the, oh, this is what we're in for. (laughs) I like that the remains are bubbling. Mm -hmm. It's akin to the acid blood from Alien. Yes, I, I, I would agree with that. This particular, like, just the body of him... I mean, it's so grotesque. And I mean, you know, audiences had seen stuff like this before in the 80s. I mean, again, The Fly came out two years prior. But Mm -hmm. it's still, even today, looking at this, I was like, that's a better effect than some things that I've seen today. Oh, my God. It looks so good. Yeah. And all I could think of was how many other imitators have tried to do something like this. And it's been done badly. And it just makes you appreciate this so much more. So... Our friend, Marissa Mirable, wrote for Birth Movies Death, and she did a like a thing on the blob. And Megan, I didn't reference yours because I figured anything that you wrote, you would probably bring up here. So Marissa basically said that the special effects artist Tony Gardner, he directed 33 crew members, but he built 41 effects in only seven months. And Jeez. the concept of the blob was an acidic type creature, and things like skin and organic fabrics would start to dissolve and slide off immediately. And things like skeletal structure and fingernails and hair, dead cells that the blob would have no interest in, it would bleach those out. <laughs> Ew. He, he, he wanted to make everything pearlescent, like a crystal sculpture, but he and Russell compromised on a different approach while utilizing a blood scale as the creature grew in size throughout the film. The blob itself was made out of methosil, which is a fruit additive used to thicken gravy. And milkshakes. Yeah. <laughs> 100 gallons of hexoplasm. Vinyl, urethane, and latex foam, along with a lot of silk fabrics and lycra. Yeah. Nuts. So weird. That's the kind of stuff where I just think of movie magic, because <laughs> when I looked at this, I thought that they just bought, you know, a hundred gallons of goo and poured it over people. And kind obviously of? that would not work. No. It does work in a couple of scenes where you can actually see it, like in the car attack on Scott, but... For the most part, I mean, I think they were being very strategic with how this thing would move and look and evolve throughout the course of the film. And you can see it does change. It physically alters as it's consuming more people and getting bigger. Mm-hmm. It's like a flamingo. It's a baby flamingo. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> like the blob when it first opens, it's like this gray matter and baby flamingos are gray. What makes them pink is what they eat. 
and uh, you know for flamingos it's like brine shrimp and for the blob it's human flesh um, so you know i did making not know the blob that. cute so thank you for that <laughs> the more you know guys <laughs> well i do like so so in the original blob it's literally just a ball like a blob a blob, blob. Like a but this one adds ball, yeah yeah it, it looks like jelly yeah this one adds tentacles to it which i appreciate i do most of the time sometimes the effect on the tentacles isn't as convincing but i mean it was 1988 joe yeah i know it's a very small complaint to be making about the special effects in this movie maybe i'm misremembering but i feel like the tentacles come into play after like this certain reveal of the origins like so it's supposed to look more amoeba like as it gets larger maybe it's just a locomotion thing Maybe. I'm not quite sure. I mean, honestly, the, 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 the scenes where we get the blob moving in fast motion. Yeah. It's, I mean, there's a lot of them, but it's always, oh God, it's it's not a green screen, but it's like a rear shot projection where it's like the actress running in front of a screen of right. the footage that's been previously filmed. No, that is green screen. Uh, is it, uh, cool. Rear projection is usually when you're seeing people driving and they're projecting <laughs> the road behind them in the car. Gotcha. Well, none of those look good in this movie. And I don't know if they look good in 1988. <laughs> yeah, I think there's a quality to the physicality of the blob because it's an actual practical effect. Whereas all of the stuff where you see it just projected, it's stuff that they actually filmed later in L.A., and then they kind of put it back into the film and it just doesn't look quite as real because people aren't interacting with it either. Mm -hmm. Right. Coming back, we have discovered the liquefied remains of Canman. And at this point, Paul then calls the sheriff and he is attacked and disintegrated by the blob right in front of Meg. So I got this too. Also from Marissa's piece. To get the effect, Gardner went to a company called Image Masters to have the actor programmed into a computer and scanned from the collarbone up. The information was fed into a computer, which operated like a lathe and generated coordinates into a three-dimensionality on carving wax to produce a six-inch bust. Later, mm. it was put into the blob to obtain the effect of a body half-consumed. Yeah, because you can also see a special effect of them covering the top half of his shoulders and face as they make the mold, and Whoa. they do the same with his arm. It's actually super freaky. I had to watch it in sped-up motion because it goes on for so long, mm -hmm. and it's the actual actor... Yes. Yeah. I mean, there. it makes sense. But at the time I was thinking, uh, if I was just a regular actor, I would not feel comfortable because of course they cover his entire face. They barely leave nose holes. And then at one point he has to stretch his mouth open like the screen that we see in the blob. And that's that's the VHS cover. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But that's also the only way that he was able to keep breathing because they have covered literally every other aspect of his head. And it looked terrifying it is a gnarly death like i I'm, i've seen this movie again four or five times mm -hmm. i was watching this last night and i was just like holy shit like this is so good rough rough yeah. rough rough so this was the exact moment where my husband brian turned around from his computer so he sees meg reaching and then you know we cut back to an image of paul and you're seeing the skin dissolving off of his head mm -hmm. as it, the blob exits out the window and brian was just like what the fuck is that <laughs> i was like it's the blob baby it's the blob <laughs> it's the blob baby that's our subtitle <laughs> It's for this episode blob, baby <laughs> i love it put that as my pull quote for this movie <laughs> so of course 
everyone thinks that Meg is a hysterical loony bin, and her parents just take her home. <laughs> and Flag is picked up and taken in for questioning. I will say that I do like the dynamic between Meg and her mom. There's a moment earlier when, like, her mom gives her a shirt because she shrunk her sweater, and it's like a thirty second scene, but mm-hmm. it's really sweet. It really like gives you it gives you that connection. I mean, again, these characters could come across two dimensional in, in any other movie, but. They're given just seconds of dialogue where you're like, oh, fills in. Yeah, it makes it makes the world a difference. Like small town vibe, these characters, like just tiny little touches. Mm-hmm. Like that's all it takes. You don't need 30 minutes or 40 minutes or whatever to build characters and then off them. Like you can do that along the way. Yep. And the scene that you're referencing, Trace, completely pays off because later when her mom comes in to check on her while she's, you know, sleeping and crying, they have this really quick conversation. And as her mom is leaving, Meg asks her, do you believe me? And the mom's kind of like, <laughs> you know, I'm sure you've been through something traumatic. And it's because <laughs> of that previous encounter that we know that Meg is like, okay, you know what? nobody's going to believe me if I want this handled. I've got to do it on my own. And that's where you see the shift. She's no longer Paul's Meg. She's now like her own badass Meg. Right. Yeah. But before we can get to that, we have to cut to the top of the hill overlooking the hospital (laughs) where we have Rapey Rapey Scott setting up an elaborate session to make out with his passed out date, Vicky. She's just, I mean, dressed, quote unquote. She's just drunk, right? Like he wasn't drugging her drinks. I feel like he was. So before like, it started, I thought that's what I thought he was doing. But then when they show him making his cherry coolers, trademark, <laughs> he's just, I mean, maybe, maybe it's a pre-mixed drug. I don't know. She's basically already passed out by the time we see him make the drink. So we don't know if he put something into the first one. What we see him prepare just looks like a very strong drink, which he then mixes with his own portable hand mixer. <laughs> Oh, from his trunk of goodies. Uh, and there's like fucking breath spray on like the, 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 the lid of the trunk. It's so funny. I don't even think it matters like what he puts in it because the intent is the same regardless. Right. Yes, yeah. you are correct. It doesn't matter to him whether or not she's awake or passed out. This is that female perspective that we need. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like he he's like pretty much plying her intentionally to get her to the blackout stage. So like maybe he's drugging her, maybe he's not. I mean, but nevertheless, he's he's a cheap bastard. He's probably not paying. But like he, the point is, is he he woos these girls with his shitty ring box full of fake rings and uh, like plies Megan. them drunk. Megan, he has an entire box of those things. Yes, that's that what I mean. That doesn't come for cheap, Megan. <laughs> I'm sure it's like the quarter turn machine. Like, <laughs> you know what I mean? Is. Like, those oh, are yeah. some, like, terribly cheap rings. He's he's like a high school jock. Those are going to turn your skin green for sure after, like, one wear. But this poor girl, though. So, okay, we don't know this girl. But, ma'am, A, how passed out she must have been to not feel the blob just get inside her. B, me imagining what happens to this girl is so upsetting. She probably had the most merciful death blob-wise, though. Mm -hmm. She would never see it coming. She didn't see it coming, and she was out cold in the 30 seconds he was, like, getting himself ready to date rape her. So, yeah, I mean, it's a terribly mean-spirited death, but in terms of, like, gore and suffering, she didn't seem to have that problem. I'm gonna posit something alternative that's even more disturbing. Okay. She doesn't get date raped by what's his face? Ah, Scott. No, you're she... suggesting she got date raped by the blob. By the blob. It crawls up her vagina and oh empties her out from the inside. 
Is that just like the worst thing that you could think of so that you could say? <laughs> I, I mean, mean, I was on board with you because he, he like tentacles, basically it bursts forth well, from her. But I'm not thinking that that's the entry point. What is the entry point? I thought it was through the back, which is right. how the front of her is still all completely normal. Right. Okay. Okay. That's what I was thinking. That makes me sound like less of a perv if we go with that. So let's let's do that. Yes, be less pervy. <laughs> That's not Trace's uh, <laughs> ammo. I do like the um the, the the shot when it's coming through the grass and it's like you just see the grass moving. It's a very anaconda e type thing where you're like, ooh. <laughs> yeah, that was partially to save a little bit of money and also partially because we wanted to delay further reveals of the blog. Right. I also like the fact that there's a bit of a reverse date rape in this. So Chuck Russell is very deliberate in the audio commentary where he talks about how Scott gets what's coming to him. So mm -hmm. he's he's very aware that this scene is icky yeah. and that's why what happens to Scott is so terrible. But I do like that if we're going to introduce the idea that the blob has these tentacle probey things, this is he Scott gets date getting date raped. Yeah. So yeah. my only qualm with that is though, between the two deaths between Vicky and Scott, she has the more grotesque one where we like see her face cave in. We don't get that for him. Well, we get to see his terror. She didn't know what was happening because he drugged right. her. So she didn't suffer. We see her body and we're freaked out by it, but he's the one witnessing it. Like he's the one getting gotcha. terrified witless before he dies. And I feel like that's a more justified way to go. All right. Mm-hmm. I'll subscribe to that. <laughs> I also like that the way that they achieved the final result where the blob quickly assumes his head is that they turned the car on the side and just poured it over him. Mm -hmm. Which is crazy to me. I'm just like, I don't understand how movies are made. There was a good bit of um, exposition too, like when we first cut to them. And she's like, what are all those lights? He's like, oh, it's the hospital. So we know. Oh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they're right by where the blob was. Well, we talk so often about geography, and I don't feel like I always know where everything is in this town, but... Joe, that's what the opening credits were for. <laughs> okay, fine. I'll give you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So at the police station, the sheriff orders flag released after he licks Deputy Brig, who is played by Paul McCrane. And this, to me, is the, the gayest yep. element of this film. I wrote this down. I love Paul McCrane, who, um, well, most, well, no one that listens to this will know him from, probably, but I know him from ER. I feel like that's where most people in a certain generation know him from. Yes, um, but he famously died in that show by, um, A, he got his arm chopped off by a helicopter, and then, like, a season later, he died when a helicopter fell on him. It was really funny. But he's also the gay character in Fame, the movie. He's also in Robocop, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, and he gets a very blob-like death in that movie. <laughs> I think he's wonderful at playing assholes, and maybe his characters just always deserve what they get. So, this lick, though. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was really into it. <laughs> <laughs> of course you were. I mean, you know, it's... There is something unabashedly sexual and sensual about it. It kind of is. I mean, Paul McCrane doesn't have a lot to do in this movie. Like, he has a couple scenes before he um, is uh, leaving the film later. Mm -hmm. But, I don't know. I mean, it's obviously, obviously it's not really queer, but I'm going to just assume it is. Trace has been flagged. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. <laughs> <laughs> it's hey, it's I'm too like immersed in Stephen King because every time you say flag, I'm thinking Randall Flag. So it's uh-huh. like, that's mm. where my mind's going. Well, Brian is so boring. It just everything about this, like they gave him the last name Flag, and that's badass, and that's who this character is. Um, he's not a fucking Brian. Come on. I actually think that Flag is not boring when he's not with Meg. I think when he's with Meg, she is so awesome that it envelops his any personality he has. Well, because you love a badass bitch. Yeah, I mean, we've got true. Shawnee fucking Smith running around in green army pants just kicking ass and taking names in this movie which honestly though let's thank god that this movie did flop because let's say it was really successful and then she went on to a booming career she would not have done saw maybe because the whole reason that james wan sought her is because he had a crush on her from his youth and i'm thinking in my heart it was because of this movie that he had a crush on her in the first place and pursued her for the saw yeah. Well, what else is Shawnee Smith known for? Because the Grudge as Three. Who... <laughs> no hesitation. <laughs> She's actually really good in that movie. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know her anything else. She was in the Stand. Yes. The TV one. Yeah. 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 Okay. Is there another Stand? I just realized as I said it, I'm like, I know they're making another one right now, but I believe that one will also be TV. So I don't know why. Well, I said it is, it. but it's the CBS streaming, so it's going to be like a full R rating right oh good okay yeah some good people getting cast in that too oh yeah and that movie needs to be rated or i'm sorry that mini series needs to be rated r that mini series needs a lot of things because that (laughs) original is not great nope (laughs) all right all right so at this point meg tracks flag down at the diner where he has gone to get some food because fran is the nicest lady in town and even though the diner is closed she will still make you a sandwich and serve you a free slice of pie she's a peach i love her she's just mm-hmm. amazing this movie tries so hard to make you like her before it just brutally murders her Mm-hmm. which is coming up in about 2.5 seconds because yeah. basically they have their own meet cute here where he realizes oh she's not quite a good girl and she realizes that she's gonna need him if they're gonna make this happen and we get a quick cut to find out that briggs has gone to the woods with some canvassers to try to find something and the sheriff has decided that he will meet fran as she has suggested at 11 o'clock when she gets off of her shift so, back in the kitchen, a clogged sink takes out the dishwasher George, who is literally sucked down the pipe. Okay, is this your favorite death in the movie, or are we saving this for the child? Uh, my favorite death is Franz. Oh, okay, interesting. This is my favorite death, because it's one of those, like, so bizarre, nutty, and it shows so much of it. Like, even with R-rated movies today, I'm so used to movies, like, not showing, like, how graphic something is. And this movie does not shy away from anything. Even a fucking scene when a guy gets pulled down a sink drain. I don't know. I would actually challenge. I feel like this is so well edited that it makes you think it's gorier than it actually is. 
don't get me wrong, you know, we still see the shoes circling around as he's getting dragged down, mm-hmm. and we get the explosion of blood and blob at the end, but I think by cutting back to Fran's reaction and then also Blag and Meg's reaction when they come in, it makes you think about how much of the body has gone down that sink, but we don't actually see most of it. We see his head, and then we just see the feet. But it's snapped in half. And they show you that much. Yeah. I will also confess that I knew, obviously I knew this was coming, the jump scare of the, the blob finally like, grabbing his face. I mm-hmm. jumped out of my seat watching this. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I it's did. It's really good. <laughs> Actually, you know what? The gayest thing in this movie is all of the men who are getting face raped. <laughs> Actually, it's the giant blob penis that comes out later of the sewers, but we'll get to that later. Well, there is that too. Yeah. I mean, there's like a blob penis here that tries to attack Meg and Flag as well. Basically, he gets pulled down, and they all freak out. Then it explodes to the ceiling, and this is when mm-hmm. we get that shot. We're, like, under Meg and Flag as they're running down the hall. Yes. But then it's that green screen above them of the blob, yeah. like, coming over the ceiling. Yeah. yeah. Which looks fine, but isn't super convincing. I cut it slack because it's 1988. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they end up hiding out in the freezer, and Fran busts out a window and runs down the alley to try to call for help in the phone booth and as she desperately calls sheriff herb she actually sees his decomposing face pressed up against the glass before it all shatters and she is consumed so this scene reminds me of the birds just because of that scene when tippy hedron's in the phone booth but the comedy in this is really well done because it's when she's calling the cops and the, the receptionist is like he went down to the diner and it's upon hearing that line that his body comes out up against the the window uh, up against the glass also apparently her death the overhead shot is a doll it's a miniature yep it is yeah they talk about it a lot on the audio commentary as well as the uh special features on the interview it sounds like it's his favorite effects that he thinks still holds up really really well like he praises the amount of detail that they put into the doll's hair so that it looks like candy clark Mm mm-hmm It's like a doll inside a four-foot-tall phone booth. Honestly, so I found out today that it was a doll. When I watched this, and I was like, oh, I wish we had, like, a better angle of this. Like, the overhead's kind of cool, but I wish we saw, like, I don't know, something else. But then when I read that it was a doll, I was like, oh, that's really well done. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Totally taking a side note here that when... Meg first gets to the diner, like, they show the guy that gets sucked down the mm-hmm. drain in a mere mo- moments later. Um, he locks the door. He's like, mm-hmm. I'm tired of these kids coming in. So he locks the door so no more kids come in because they're supposed to be closing. And it's just one of the many minor details that, like, pays off. Just right after this death, when they're trying to leave the diner, he picks up a brick because the door is locked. Mm -hmm. And it's such a, like, non-issue. It doesn't matter one way or the other to the plot, but it's just yet another moment where they're paying attention to the detail. And, like, it matters. I I I love that. When a lesser filmmaker would not be doing that. Can you imagine? Right. Okay. Oh, God. I know Jason Blum's not listening to this, but if he is, sorry. But, like, can you imagine Blumhouse doing this? They would just cut to them being in the alley or something later. Like, oh, yeah, that would never sure. even be a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you wouldn't even show people going in or out of the building. Right. No. And yeah. it would be PG-13. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it would. Well, because Megan, you're right. There's actually, I think, two 
other times where they address that because Meg gets up to leave and she tries to push against the door and it doesn't budge. And I I didn't remember initially. And I was like, oh, right, George just locked that. And that's why she's able to get lured back by Flag to come and finish the sandwich in the... um... Yeah. And then it also explains why Fran has to break that window. Like, why didn't she just go out the front door? And then even later, after the Reverend observes the blob going down into the sewer and he comes in to investigate, he has to go through the shattered glass of the door, which is still locked. Exactly. Like, just that little detail has a ripple effect, and and it totally justifies all of the actions and behaviors of the characters. Mm-hmm. And I just think that's, like, a really clever such a small detail it's like really cleverly done mm-hmm. i agree yeah so when the reverend is inside he does manage to collect a couple of frozen pieces from the freezer because at this point flag and meg have already escaped they're actually headed up into the woods after they find out that's where briggs has gone and it is here that they meet dr meadows is played by Joe Seneca, and he is there with his biological containment team. So they are locking down the original meteor site. I will confess, so I, I, I've been really getting into clocking things to determine the pacing of a film. This mm-hmm. is 52 minutes into this movie. It seems so late to bring in the government. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it works, and I actually like... So do y'all... Right. Obviously the movie has an antagonist, which is the blob. But then we have a second antagonist, which is Dr. Meadows. Mm-hmm. Does this work for y'all, or is it too much? I think it works for me, for the time frame that it is. It's like, I like that it's, like, surprise. Everybody's equal in this town, you know? Doesn't matter, this blob kills indiscriminately. But it's clear that the writers have uh, government and organized religion as their mm. true, like, distaste. You know, they do not like these two entities. So the blob is a byproduct of one of those things. Well, that that's the thing, too, because in the original, the blob is an alien. This yeah. one changes it to where it's a man-made thing. And, again, all of us are written for Bloody Disgusting. We know that commenters don't like when you integrate politics into any horror film because they're like i don't want social commentary political commentary in my (laughs) horror movies blah 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 but like something like this which again is a very entertaining movie you don't have to like really read into the commentary that much but it's fucking right there oh yeah this is a very deliberate choice like this is what distinguishes this film from the original is the source of the horror in this case it is man-made and it is local this is an american villain who has produced an unstoppable killing machine and i don't know the exact date of the cold war but it's the 80s and i've seen the Americans, so i'm gonna assume that it's around this time they even named up the russians in this movie to where it's like they could have easily said oh the russians did it but Mm -hmm. no it's us we mm-hmm. did it. I think that has to do with also the shifting, you know, like in the 50s, the whole big, I guess, motivation for the blob and Steve McQueen's character is like, mm-hmm. that's when juvenile delinquency was the huge scare. You yeah. know, in the 50s is like, oh my God, the kids, the kids. That's why it's the whole big thing that nobody believes him. And he spends way too much of the plot trying to convince the town that there's something wrong until it's too late. That is one thing about the original that I like, though, is because in this one, you know, it's Meg, you know, because she's the one that's like, believe me, believe me, and like, no, right. you're a crazy woman. We're gaslighting you. I did appreciate <laughs> in the original that it was a man who was like, this is what's happening, and they didn't believe him. So on that level, I like it, but I get what you're saying. But they didn't believe, like, any of the, like, he enlisted his his other right. delinquent friends that he was racing with and they didn't believe anybody it was like yeah. Yeah, teens versus adults juvenile delinquency was the fear and that doesn't really apply 
in the not 80s. in the 80s no yeah. in the 50s that is the prime concern right so it makes sense to kind of like modernize at least in this context um the whole crux of of this creature it's not right. an alien it's not the atomic 50s anymore with juvenile delinquency now it's like mm-hmm. we're a little worried about russia and what our government is doing well i mean this film is really all about a conspiracy theory right mm-hmm. yeah well, not all of it, but a large part of this particular subplot is this idea that the government is not working in your interest, which is kind of radical in Reagan's conservative late right. 80s, right? So they're basically saying, mm, maybe don't trust everything that the government is telling you. Uh, same thing with the freaking reverend. Like, mm-hmm. like, this is a clear small town, and he's got a drinking problem from the outset. He's a creepy guy. Oh, We didn't talk about it, but I full-on thought that he was a pedophile in the introductory scene in the drugstore. I thought that he was hitting on Scott. Yeah, I got that vibe too, actually. Yeah, like, there's something really weird about him from the get-go. So it's like, this movie is broadcasting through and through. Don't trust the people that are supposed to be your authorities. Mm -hmm. Don't trust your your religious leaders. Don't trust the government. And the fact that they end this film in Town Hall, which is then immediately destroyed. Mm-hmm. They're literally taking the institution and tearing it down. We'll 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 get to that ending because I I I'm sure about the coda. We'll have a lot of things to say too. Okay, well let's get back into it then. Yeah. So Flag and Meg are locked into the back of a van. They're told that they're going to be taken back to town for their own safekeeping, but it's actually so that they can control this experiment. Flag does not trust the authorities, so he ducks out before they can get there. Meg stays inside, and she is taken to Town Hall with the other residents of Arborville, and it's here that she realizes that Kevin and Braddy Eddie are still at the movie theater. Dun dun dun. Is this, like, the big thing that this movie is known for? I feel like people always talk about the phone booth, Paul's death, and then is this the other thing? Yes, but this this is also the big set piece in the original film, too. Right. So this had to live up to what made the original so memorable. And it does. In <laughs> spades. <laughs> yes. So there is a movie theater attack in the original as well. Yes. Okay. They still do, like, blob-thons every year where it's like they have some annual fest that shows the blob in the original 1958 theater. Mm-hmm. Oh, so really? It's like a big to-do, yeah. Oh, that's fun. Yeah, it's very meta. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. <laughs> We don't get that here because in Canada, 75% of our theaters are owned by one fucking conglomerate, and all they want to do is show mainstream Hollywood films. So next, I just got the schedule for Terror Tuesday at the Draft House next month, and it's a bunch of remakes, but they're doing The Blob, which I'm like, oh, I've already seen it in the theaters, so it's fine. <laughs> but like watching The Blob in theaters, like with that theater scene, is also like watching Demons in theaters, you know, where it's like, oh, it's a movie set yeah. in a the theater, but they're also showing the House of Wax remake, and I'm really excited. <laughs> Uh-oh. I saw that in theaters. I would love to see that again in theaters. I I saw it in theaters way back in 05. Same. Same. uh, I'm so excited. Oh, yeah, because there's a movie theater scene in there, too, isn't there? Yeah, there is. Um, They're playing Baby Jane. Whatever happened. Yeah. Okay. Now that song's going to be stuck in my head. Whatever (laughs) happened to Baby Jane. That is not the song. Oh. (laughs) Wait, what song are you? Oh, wait. I've written a letter to Daddy. Oh. That's a better one. When I was watching Feud, Betty and Joan, there's that scene where Susan Sarandon is like on a late night talk show and she's doing the Baby Jane theme song. I love it so much. (laughs) Fantastic. We still have a lot to do, so we need to keep pushing. (laughs) But it's the blob, baby. All right. So go ahead. 
So at this point, Hobbs the projectionist has already been killed by the blob in the vent. This was a genuinely terrifying and uncomfortable yes. looking effect. Hobbs is basically spread thin across mm-hmm. the roof of the projection room. It's oh. Mm-hmm. This is the one part of the film that I forgot. I did not remember the projectionist dying. And that reveal of his face and his body on the ceiling, like, I think it's my favorite effect in the film of, like, a post-blob death. And again, you get that little tiny bit of comedy with, he's still got the (laughs) yo-yo. Yeah. Fun little side note is that that effect was what Tony Gardner was hired on for. He was supposed to do some of the minor things like that, while Greg Canham was going to do the major makeup effects, and Lyle Conway was doing the blob, like, mechanical effects. And then, before you know it, Greg Canham had to pull out, so then they just gave all of the makeup effects to Tony, and then Lyle pulled out, and so Tony did, like, all of it. (laughs) That's where you get your 41 effects in seven months. Holy shit. Yes. So, he thought he was going to start small, and he didn't even know he was ready for that but yeah surprise you're a pro tony jeez trial by fire Mm -hmm. so at this point meg arrives in the theater and it is kind of pandemonium because the blob has begun to eat people did you laugh though when the movie within a movie when the jason s killer attacks the people and he's like wait a second hockey season ended months ago (laughs) it's like the garden tool massacre or something (laughs) something like that Yes. I meant to take note of it. It's shockingly enough when you when you do like movie within movie blob in nineteen eighty eight, it doesn't pop up. So it was frustrating. The internet let me down on that one. Well, I think the marquee has the name of it, but I, I yeah. didn't pay attention to it. Yeah, I just didn't grab it when I was watching. So because he's like the gardener before yeah. he shows he's got a hockey mask, and I'm mm. pretty sure one of the billion times I've watched it, it's something like Garden Shed or Garden Tool Massacre. Right, that sounds about right. Yeah. So, yeah, so the blob is attacking this theater. It is gobbling up people. They are freaking out and trying to run out. And, of course, she's got to grab these kids. So she manages to get both of them. And there, you know, there's that effect, though, when she like, finds a body on the ground and she lifts it up and the face, like, peels off. Yeah. It's good. I it's like how gum. sticky, gooey people are in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> it's not going to be for everyone's taste, but I liked it a lot. So she manages to grab both of them. They narrowly escape out the back alley. This is where we get Chekhov's jacket. And I was kind of hoping that Kevin was going to die, but it's okay. <laughs> so they make it all the way to the end. They get trapped. They realize they had to go down into the sewer. And we get another little tentacle bit as it... Love this. Love mm-hmm. this. Yeah, it's suitably creepy because it's... I don't know. It's so personal and intimate that it singes the top of her hair. I don't know. Maybe Megan, if you want to comment on this, but like, it's weird. Again, and the original The Blob is like a massive gelatin. And mm-hmm. it is that in this one for the most part, except when there's tentacles. The tentacles, it looks like it's like a solid mass, which obviously is the effect. But it gives The Blob a bit more of a menace to me when it's like not just this gelatinous thing. It's like, oh no, it's like it has these physical fingers. It's well, well. Mm-hmm. well it's evolving. I'm pretty sure it's mm-hmm. getting smarter and like. Mm-hmm bigger and figuring out different ways to you're gonna have to figure out different ways to move when your mass is 
Mm-hmm. How many how many pounds did they say that was? I mean, just the the effect wise, I think Chuck Russell at one point said it was like hundreds of pounds yeah. the bigger it got. Yeah. So I mean, if we're saying that this thing really is in the context of the movie, like the thing is cleverly finding ways to evolve and get around quickly. Yeah. So yeah, the tentacle thing is weird, but sometimes very effective. Oh, yeah. well, I think it also it makes the blob seem. I don't know. It makes it seem more alive. I'm a big fan of the British television show, The Prisoner, and it has an antagonist, which is basically just a bouncing inflatable ball that's about a story tall. And like what it does is it usurps people, like it presses them down and then they get folded and sucked into it. So kind of blob-ish, but it doesn't have a character per se, like it is just a ball. Whereas when you get tentacles, when you get motions and height and depth to this blob, it feels more like a proper antagonist to me. I think also like in this particular scene, it's just something eerie about how there's a manhole cover and that thing is going to wedge itself into those tiny mm-hmm. covers because mm-hmm. it is that desperate to get well, at its next prey. And I, yeah. I know we glossed over it, but like in, even earlier when they're in the freezer in the diner, like it goes under the door. And yeah. of course, at this point, we're like, oh, it doesn't like cold. But mm-hmm. like it, it squeezes. It's a blob. It squeezes through everything. It, Whoa, exactly. So scary. Space is not an issue despite its size. Yeah. Yeah. The, the the scene with Fran's death is a really good at this though because it like it goes through like the cracks in the door of the phone booth, mm-hmm. and even when they're trying to get when Kevin ends up getting his jacket caught in the door, mm-hmm. you can actually see the blob pushing out the deadbolts that keep the door in place. I'm just imagining people on the other side like pushing this gel <laughs> through these cracks. <laughs> Some of it was puppetry. I mean, it wasn't all blob quilts. I mean, some of it was actual right. puppets, especially the tentacles. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of that rayon had to come in. So then we get some aquatic horror into this movie, which I always welcome. Yeah, so we're down in the sewers, and we technically jump back to Flag overhearing Dr. Meadows talking about how this yeah, is actually Russians, all organized by him, blah, blah, blah. expendable. We should note that the bridge jump that Flag ends up doing on his motorcycle after the high-speed chase is an actual stunt that they did, and it was executed very, very well, and Chuck Russell was very pleased with it. Oh, okay. (laughs) Was that in the commentary? Yeah. (laughs) And nobody was there to cheer him on. No. But it still turns out well for him. Yeah. So in the sewers, Eddie is almost immediately abducted, which is great. Well... Hey, so I'm a sucker for anything where it's like, oh, there's something in the water, we can't see it, and we're gonna go around. And I love the way that they reveal that the blob is in there with them, is the, watch out for the rat. What rat? What rat? (laughs) It's really good. (laughs) I mean, you also get the classic kind of, you can see the water moving directly Mm -hmm. behind them right before Eddie gets grabbed. But how many times in horror are rats actually, like, the heralder of, of evil is coming? Mm-hmm. Like, more often than not, you're, like, the tunnel in yeah. 28 days later. Like, when the rats are running, you better run. So, Joe, mm-hmm. you knew this kid kill was coming. Yes. Did this live up to your expectations for what a kid kill should be? I mean, I'm not surprised that they don't ultimately show anything happening to eddie like he literally just gets sucked back and then he's under the water and we never see him again it's not um, like no, that's not true that's not no. true at all is it not true did no, i miss no. it he literally pops out blobby and goes Bleh! and then gets sucked he's back like again all melty yeah. he's already being digested oh my god i've missed it i must have been taking notes at the time <laughs> 
you missed it. I was like, how yeah. did this child death not be Joe, brutal? It is amazing. It's literally like Paul 2.0 death, where like the kid like shoves himself out of the water, and he's going, Bleh! and like the blob just pulls him. Out. It's it's not a long sequence. Like, it's it's literally like, two seconds, but like right. you see him melting inside this blob. It's like, you know, Jason takes Manhattan when he's, like, all Mm -hmm. uh, toxic waste Jason baby in the sewers. That's Mm -hmm. this, but better. Okay. So go back and watch that. Watch it again. (laughs) Yeah. Just for this two seconds. It's worth it to see a child get killed. You can YouTube it. It's fine. (laughs) I am am a sucker for killing kids in movies. Like, yes, break that taboo. Well, this kid was a shit, too. Fucking die. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Blob don't care. Blob don't care. So at this point, Meg and Kevin have to get out of here, and we start to get the reveal that this blob has gotten crazy big. So we saw it in shadow and in flickering lights inside the theater, but then it starts to come up, and it looks like a giant fucking gaping mouth beneath them as they're trying to climb up these pipes. So it's kind of like... What a pink anus. A pink anus. <laughs> Star Wars fans don't kill me if I pr- mispronounce this, but it's the Sarlacc. The Sarlacc. Yes, from Return of the Jedi. That, that's what this is. <laughs> yeah. And it looks good. Looks oh, really good. Oh, it's still that green screen, but it looks good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So they manage to... I mean, she basically forces Kevin out, and he's okay, and then she falls back into the water, nearly gets eaten until a bunch of red shirt scientists show up so that they can shoot at it. It eats them. She gets back up. Flag helps her out. This is the kind of stuff where I was like, all right, let's move it along, because there's a bunch of stuff in the tunnels with the bike, and then they get trapped there by Dr. Meadows. I do like this part, though, when she gets in the bike with Brian, because Brian saves her. I'm sorry, Flag saves her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) She gets on the bike, and she, like, squeezes his tit. And then he, like, looks at her and, like, <laughs> smiles. Like, baby, there's a time and place for foreplay. Now is not the time. But wait, you weren't into the whole, like, oh, the blob is covering the pipe. We have to, like, s- drive up the side of the pipe to get over it. Like, that was suspenseful to me. No, no, sure. It's it's fine. I don't know. At this point, I was kind of like, all right, you know, I think we're ramping up to a climax and this isn't it. Okay. Particularly the the part where they try to climb up and then Meadows is like, no, we're just going to park this truck over top of the manhole. It's like, let's move on. Them getting sealed in the sewers is the 76 minute mark. So there is effectively 15 to 20 minutes left in this movie. Yeah. You can tell that there's a lot more to come, but this is not it, is what I mean. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I'm not asking you to agree with me. I'm telling you how I felt. No, I'm Pretty... saying you're wrong. <laughs> So they manage to climb up eventually to the top side, and they have attracted a lot of attention because they've blown up a fucking truck. So Dr. Meadows is there, a bunch of his scientists, as well as townspeople, and at this point, Flag reveals the truth to everybody. So he says, you know, they created this, you are not safe, and Meadows tries to turn it around on him, but of course he is uh, attacked by the blob and dragged down into the sewers, and it's delightful. That shot of the blob filling his helmet is Mm. so good. Side note, as them blowing up the truck, I am pretty sure that that soldier is Bill Mosley, that they get that bazooka or whatever it is from. I think it is, yeah. I did not know that. He gets a very brief credit on the Wikipedia page, I think as like injured scientist. Yeah. (laughs) So now we get the big penis monster, which is exactly what I put in my notes. (laughs) (laughs) I believe it. So just in case you didn't know that the blob is large and threatening, it becomes a giant phallus and then flaps down on somebody. Um, this, 
<laughs> this effect. It like yeah, it slaps down on someone, but then it lifts up and you just see the corpse like stuck to its underside, like an octopus mm-hmm. cynical. Yeah. This is when I was like, okay, I'm back into this. Because you could tell, yeah, things are starting to get really exciting because all of a sudden there's a lot of people and this thing is massive now. So everybody starts freaking out. So this lag you're talking about is five minutes. Mm, it's kind of like the whole time when they're down in the sewer. Wait, even but the kid But they killed a kid! I mean, it's good, but I also just told you I missed the good part of it, so I was Clearly. Kind of like, nah. <laughs> Twice. So you could have been riding a high off of that moment, and instead you were deflated that it wasn't gory because you were writing notes, and exactly. then the rest of it's like, ugh. Now it's, the context has changed. If you. I wasn't a really dedicated film critic, and I, if I hadn't been taking notes, if Fuck I could have just watched the movie the way it was intended by God. <laughs> Okay, so people are flipping the fuck out, and at this point, the Reverend is accidentally set on fire, which I also liked. But wait, it's set on fire when the blob plugs up a flamethrower with its tentacle. <laughs> hmm Yeah. I do love that these generic scientists are just getting fucking sliced and diced at this point. <laughs> I mean, they did deserve it. Oh, yeah. they totally deserve it. Yeah. Well, no, this is the point where, well, the movie's still mean, because it has one other death for us that's just brutal, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is the movie being cathartic and being like, cool, you've seen a bunch of people that you care about dying, minus that kid, and yeah. here is these douchebag government scientists. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of people that were not sure, like, it's a lot of extras, so if they are getting killed, we're kind of fine with it. It turns into more of an action movie at this point. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Everybody who's still left alive seals themselves up inside the town hall, except for Flag, who goes to Moss's garage so that he can pick up the snow truck. And Meg realizes that the blob doesn't like the cold, so she's using a fire extinguisher. And uh, this is the point also where Deputy Briggs is broken in half like a toothpick inside the building. So I saw this movie for the first time on TV when I was younger. Oh no, so you're not going to get this, are you? Oh no. You do. Oh, really? (laughs) (laughs) You definitely get this. Because I remember seeing this death and only knowing this guy from ER and being like, holy shit. Like, (laughs) what is this? I think I probably started watching it, like, during the sewer scene. Like, oh, so you you would be watching it completely out of context. (laughs) Absolutely. Like, and and Megan, I don't know if you, because, you know, Joe's older and, like, you know, we're roughly the same age. So we grew up kind of growing up with the same stuff. Like, I, I would come into a lot of movies on TV in the middle of them. Yeah. This is one of those movies, and I, I think I started with the sewer scene, so the first thing I saw was the kid death. Oh, wow. But this, this backbreaking thing mm-hmm. fucked me up as a kid. It's really good. And we actually haven't talked about it, but the sound effects when the blob hurts people mm-hmm. is also really good. Like, particularly Quenches. when George goes down the sink, the sound effects as he's going through the pipe is really good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He likes to snap people in half if he's not dissolving them. Mm-hmm. Um, the blob is also making lots of pig squealing sounds. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun to watch this movie with subtitles, by the way. Does it say pig squeals? <laughs> well, it just says uh, the slime screams or moans or... The slime scream. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's like when I was watching Zombievers last week and it was like, Zombievers cooing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> somebody had to decide okay how would we describe this sound is yeah. it a coup is it a squeal <laughs> 
So Flight returns and he immediately gets into trouble. The truck ends up getting knocked over and Love Meg this. has to come out in full fucking action heroin mode. She's got a giant gun. She's shooting at the blob. She's trying to lure it into a trap wherein she can blow up the liquid nitrogen tanks on the truck. I wonder if they took inspiration from Aliens for this. Possibly. Because Aliens was 86. Yeah, Chuck Russell definitely says he didn't intend for the comparisons, but that he's happy to have contributed to the kind of badassery of women happening at this time. Mm-hmm. I mean, her, her that shot of her like shooting the machine gun is yeah. kind of epic. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. She looks serious, right? Because sometimes you'll have women pick up guns and they go to shoot it and it kind of <sighs> sprays bullets everywhere. And it's <laughs> so fucking trite but here she she looks like ripley does when she's facing down the alien queen mm-hmm. she has been pissed off ever since her mama said she didn't believe her so she mm-hmm. has some shit to prove yeah, Honest, no you, that's mom. actually a really no <laughs> that's good it's not just people that are dying right her. it's like she's like fighting against people that didn't believe her they weren't willfully gaslighting her because they didn't believe her but it's like again making her think she's crazy It's kind of funny, though, because earlier in the diner scene, when she and Flag are sort of first getting to know each other, they do commiserate about how much they hate the town. I do kind of like that they both end up ultimately banding together to say, you know what, we hate this place, but it doesn't mean we want to see it blobbed to the ground. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, she goes back for her family, for the town. Yeah. He's got people that he likes, too, even though he's trying to be a hard ass in a mullet and leather jacket. Right. Mm -hmm. So basically, at this point... The pair of them. They have to work together to successfully detonate this truck, and it causes... Wait, You are forgetting this shot of her jumping off of this nitrogen tank and fucking face-planting into the side of it. It looks painful. That had to be a stunt woman, right? I would imagine so, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, because she she sets it up, she jumps off, and her foot gets stuck in something. And she just, like, face-plants into the side of this damn truck, and it it looks really hurt. Like, it it hurts. (laughs) I'll confess I didn't love this because I would have loved for her to have just been the yeah. hero and instead Flag has to come and kind of fish her out and then together they manage to set off the explosives. But but at the fine. same time, it's like payback because he's only alive because she came out and saved him. Saved yes. him. Yeah. Yeah. I think had it been like, oh, he saves her and then also he destroys the monster, that would have rang more false to me. But this to me wasn't the same where it's, oh, he helps her, but really she did all the work and it's because of her that this thing is dead. He just made sure she didn't die in the process. Right. Yeah, exactly. And he delivered the truck as well. He drove people. Come on. (laughs) But the entire movie is really them been like tag teaming, saving each other. It's true. She, she, to me, is the hero and he's like the sidekick. He's the Robin to her Batman. Yeah, I agree. Agree. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's got that hair. He could take off with it, so <laughs> I believe it. Honestly, it's like Jeff Goldblum's mullet in fucking The Fly. Kind, kind of. Mixed with, like, Michael Jackson from Thriller. <laughs> I mean, on the cover of the Scream Factory Blu-ray, I literally thought it was Prince. <laughs> purple Rain? It's fucking purple, and he's got the mullet, and he's on a motorcycle. It looks like Purple Rain. Okay. <sighs> I love Scream Factory. I think they put out great releases. What is up with their art? Well, no, I'm into their artwork most of the time, but this artwork and the road games artwork, I am literally like, what the fuck is this? What are y'all doing? 
<laughs> Jamie Lee Curtis understand. in Road Games looks like bullshit. And she's this... got that wonky fucking arm. I actually don't mind the back of the cover of but this. But say the like... back of the cover, like, why can't we have the original VHS cover art with, like, Paul? Like, that. Dude, no. The reverse yes. works, but it's, like, the weird Twilight Time release. Like, give me the original, please. Well, but, no, because the theatrical poster was that one, where it was, like... The bubbles and... Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and then there's someone coming from the corner. It was only the VHS cover that was Paul. Yeah, but I want that. I Exactly. <laughs> I want that. Give me a a new rendering of that with animation style. I don't need this shitty animated Kevin Dillon and Shawnee style. Yeah. Yeah. It it doesn't look good. Like again, I think the Valentine cover looks great. I think most of screen factor stuff looks great. Yeah. This one does not look good to me. Like I, I don't reverse my, my covers very much as on the reverse side of screen factor. You know, it's the original print. I reverse this one. Cause I was like, I don't like this fucking artwork. I like the actual blob and all of the scientists caught up in the in the mix and stuff. I just don't like Flag, and it it does not look at all like Shawnee Smith either. Um, I don't know. It looks like a generic girl to me. It doesn't look like her. I mean, she has distinct features. I think it looks more like her than Jamie than him. Curtis. Oh, that Jamie Curtis. Oh, that arm is hilarious. That arm is four feet long. It's oh, <laughs> yeah, it's something. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, I derailed this, but go it's ahead. okay. You know what? We are right at the end. So they explode the truck. They freeze the blob. The town is saved. Hurrah. I do love that there's a throwaway. I don't know if it's ADR line, but somebody says, we better scoop all this up and get it into the freezer soon. That is Moss. Is and it Moss? Who says that it? cracks me up because he is so laid back. Like, that is your truck, which is also your livelihood. And you're like, it's all good, baby. We'll just... Put it in the freezer for dawn. Let me it's, see if my it's insurance. It's the blob, baby. It's the How blob. How shocked y'all that Moss did not die in this movie, though? <laughs> I was super happy. I actually was hopeful that he was going to be involved in more of it. Mm-hmm. I agree. Because honestly, this film is kind of white. Well, yeah. I mean, it's the 80s. Let's be honest. I'm glad that it worked out the way it did. One, mm-hmm. you know, you think about all the people that Flag has in his life. The people that were kind to him, besides Meg. Well, there was Fran. That didn't end well. The sheriff occasionally threw him a bone, but he was still, like, the hard ass. And then there was Moss. That was the nicest guy. So I feel like that's the only kind of parental figure he has. So Mm -hmm. you got to take him and sideline him and have him, you know, be relaxed and quippy at the end. That's cool. And it's nice that he gets to more or less end the movie proper. Yeah. Yeah. Until creepy reverend. Yeah, so we get a coda that's set in, I'm not gonna lie, this looks like some kind of weird African country, which made me uncomfortable. It's supposed to, I'm sure it's Louisiana. I'm positive he's in, like, where they, I mean, they filmed in Louisiana, Mm -hmm. and this is clearly, like, a very rural uh, Louisiana town. They just don't tell you where it is. True. We're basically inside some kind of tent. It looks very hot. And we see that the Reverend has survived his injuries. He is scarred on half of his face. And he's preaching to a very disinterested looking group of people, except for one woman, who after the service inquires how far off they are from the rapture. And he reveals that he has a blind eye that is white, but that he also still has his glass jar of blob. And it is no longer frozen. It is moving around. And yes, that was an intended sequel set up but of course because this movie didn't do well nothing came of it but that's the thing the sequel would have done (laughs) i don't know what they would have done it would have been an anti-religion movie oh okay i mean he's clearly leading the charge of humanity's death yeah 
It, or, or you do like a like a Jonestown massacre, but with the blob. Like his factions of like pro mm-hmm. blob believers. It's like yeah. Oh, like they're worshiping the blob. Yeah, or they're yeah. following the leader that's mm-hmm. worshiping the blob. Yeah, which I feel like that sounds less fun, but you could do something kooky with it. Yeah. We'll never know. No, we never will. <laughs> I mean, we love to speculate. <laughs> yeah. That final, like, shot, like, it's kind of cool in theory with the blob piece moving in the jar, but, like, when you've seen the movie enough times, you actually see the the wire going through the fake hand that's rotating the tentacle in that jar. And it's oh, kind really? Of, yeah. Yeah, it's puppetry. I, I will tell you right now, I would be fine losing this coda and losing that scene when he goes into the diner and pulls the crystals out. I would have been totally fine. Remove that from the movie, make yeah. it a 93-minute movie, and it's fine. But that's not the horror way. The horror way mm-hmm. is always leave the I door know. open. Particularly in the 80s, right? It was always, hey, yes. if this makes money, you got the green light. Right. Well, at the end of the day, my takeaway from this movie, and it's failure at the box office, is A, good movies don't always become successful. True. <laughs> financially, at least. B, 30 years later, your movie that failed, commercially, can become a classic. I always think of John Carpenter and The Thing mm-hmm. in this scenario where it's like it tanked so hard and it, you know, found an audience, like probably started amassing an audience just even a few years later. And now it's like widely beloved. And he's so like ornery get off my lawn that he's like, what good does that do me now? Yeah. Oh, and <laughs> I understand that. Yeah. Hey, right, I am constantly afraid that I'm going to wake up one day to a John Carpenter is dead because he is old as fuck. And wow, okay. No, he, I mean, come on, he, he is old, but like, he is old. yeah. And he, I don't think he's gonna make another movie. No, no. and I think the thing is, is he's to. not interested in making another movie. But I think he does, though. I love that he's so ornery that he's happy to make music, which he has full creative control over, and yeah. then just sit around making profit off his old movies and cackling all the way to the bank. But I do think he would like to make a movie. I think he just has not had a whole lot of success in that department. Well, here's my thing. Wes Craven made his shitty ass myself to take, but then luckily made Scream 4 before he died. John Carpenter, is his last movie The Ward? I think so. Mm-hmm. He has The Ward. <laughs> so, Which I actually still have not seen. Um, Here's the thing with The Ward. It's not a bad movie. It's just very generic. The reviews were very much like, this is one of the worst things I've ever seen, and it's not the case. It's just like... It's bad because it's him. Yes. Like, we expect more from John Carpenter. Think of it as a horror version of Sucker Punch. But it <sighs> it's it's better than Sucker Punch. But the thing <laughs> I mean, is, like, is. when you look at his career, like, a lot of the stuff that we love now were not actually successful. Yeah. Big Trouble in Little China? Like, look at that shit. That, that movie didn't do well either. No. It did not. Like, The Golden Child, which is terrible, like, that was way bigger deal. It came out the same summer, I think. And unfortunately, Chuck Russell didn't have the same legacy as John Carpenter or Wes Craven. I mean, obviously, he did bless the child. <laughs> mm. But I think maybe this might have had something to do with it, you know? Like, he had a lot of clout mm-hmm. after Nightmare on Elm Street, and then his immediate follow-up, nah. Even looking at something like The Mask, though, you know, like, honestly, that, that was the big one for me where I was like, oh, and considering that The Mask in comic form is kind of a horror comedy, 
Oh, yeah, because it was going to be originally just Darker. a straightforward comedy, and mm-hmm. it was because of Chuck Russell that they ended up waiting and realizing, okay, no, we need this to actually be darker. Right, but the comic of The Mask is actually a lot darker than the movie version that we got. Like, The, the Mask is a psychotic psychopath who murders uh, people. Shit, no, I got that wrong. They were going to make it dark, and then he yes. told them to make it funny. Sorry. Yes, exactly. It's still funny, but it's a gallows humor, like this movie, The Blob, that we're watching. Mm-hmm. But I just wonder, you know, if it came out in 88, had we had like a 80s practical effects, Chuck Russell, the mask, you know? Hmm. I don't know. Well, it's interesting because he he talks a lot about the practical effects in this movie and how well they've held up and how proud of it he is. But he also talks a lot about how he was tempted to try CGI. Like it literally was coming out that year where they could start to augment things with CGI and start to do it. And I think ultimately he's quite proud and happy that he didn't. But at the same time, he could have derailed it. Yeah, I mean, would it have helped to make this film more financially successful? We'll never know. But I think the reason that the mask works is because ultimately he did wait for that film and then he could use the technology that was available. Like really the way he talks about it is very reminiscent to me of James Cameron. That makes sense. And also, I just want to say, I love The Mask. I think The Mask is really good. But I would like to see that hard R-rated version of The Mask. Mm. I don't know. may never see that. Yeah. No, never will. I mean, Cameron Diaz was super hot in it. Dude. Okay, this is so silly. My first grade birthday summer party with a bunch of guys, I mean boys, we watched The Mask and we rewound the scene where she sings over and over and over (laughs) and howled at the TV screen every time she sang. Like the mask when he was a wolf. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> what a birthday party. <laughs> I was six. <laughs> Wait, and just to confirm, so you're gay? Yeah, I, uh, but, but, he do you wonder appreciate... why I love Cameron Diaz and I support Bad Teacher so much? It's because of that first birthday party. Nah. Where he was howling. Mm-hmm. Yep, at Cameron Diaz. <laughs> right. Okay. Okay, so. Any final time. thoughts on The Blob? Megan? I mean, it's one of my all-time favorite movies ever. It still holds up. I mean, it's one of the few exceptions to mullets suck. Mullets are a travesty. Mm -hmm. Who came up with them? I don't know. And Brian Blagg's mullet is terrible. But I love the movie (laughs) so much that I'm willing to overlook it. Yeah, epic mullet, but... uh... This movie is great. I was really happy to finally be able to cross it off my horror bucket list. And I can see what the fuss is about. I anticipated that I would like it going into it. And it kind of surpassed my expectations because particularly these kills, right? Like it's really hard to overlook the technical achievement. They're so well executed. They're so obviously well thought out. But I'm kind of with you, Megan. I think so much of the character work and the care that Chuck Russell took with his actors really elevates this beyond just a special effects movie. We talk about, you know, in horror, how it teaches us how to survive. Like, there's the whole Sidney Prescott spiel of, like, don't run up the stairs and, like, how you should behave if you want to survive horror movies. But horror movies don't always get credit for teaching us about the human condition and about empathy. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this one is, like, the best of both worlds. You get the really gnarly kills and the great horror, but then you also get this really amazing, like, human story about how, you know, it's what's inside that counts, and that's sappy, but it's true, and how we're all equal, 
you know, it doesn't matter your background. Like mm-hmm. the blob will eat you. The blob does not care, baby. <laughs> well, the and blob, you, baby. You kept saying something <laughs> earlier where it was like it's the little things. It is. There is a lot of characters in this movie, and there are. It's not like the film takes time to like go in depth with these characters, but it's these little moments, just minutia that. Mm-hmm add to their development like the simple thing of fran writing i'm off at 11 hmm. for sheriff for the sheriff so on, on his bill. it's so sweet and they it pays off later and you don't have to do a lot to make no. us care it's just one or two lines of dialogue that's all you need to flesh out your characters in a movie like this at least you know obviously right. you're making fucking oscar made summer whatever do your thing <laughs> Yeah, I do feel like contemporary horror films could learn a lesson or two from a film like this about how to establish your characters quickly but efficiently. Yes. Like, make you care when they die. I cared when these people died. A and lot. And let the, the actors do their jobs. Like, the actors, like, made them lived in. You have the de- the tiny little details, but then, you know, you have Jeffrey DeMunn being Jeffrey DeMunn, and it's uh, very, yes. like, charming. Mm-hmm. Like, that's it. And the lack, the subversion that Joe touched on is mm-hmm. something else that I absolutely adore. It's like, you don't know who's going to live or die. Like, so many movies, you can call out who's going to live or die, like, within the first 15 minutes. Oh, and yeah. this one, yeah, nah. Yeah, yeah. No, unless you're Joe and you've, you know, waited 30 years to see it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then he like writes down his notes and misses the best part <laughs> <laughs> oh joe after this is done for the love of fuck go <laughs> look up that clip on youtube so paul's still alive at the end of the movie right he's oh like the dog in the original he just wandered off <laughs> all right anyway <laughs> so that'll conclude this before we announce what we're covering next week megan this is your time to plug shit <laughs> Yes, Megan, plug shit up. <laughs> plug your hole and shit it up. Oh, uh, I don't, I think you plugged everything for me at the beginning. Um, I'm on Twitter at Haunted Meg, and you can find me all sorts of places, but primarily at Bloody Disgusting. And next Friday, Megan and I will be attending South by Southwest, so look out for our reviews then. Mm-hmm. And if you see them, feed them coffee and chocolate because they might be tired. <laughs> <laughs> Um, okay, well, if you'd like to contact us, you can visit our Horror Queers Facebook page or join our exclusive Horror Queers Facebook group. Tweet us at horrorqueers or email us at horrorqueers at gmail.com. If you have two seconds, please head on over to iTunes and leave us a rating or a review. But I know all of you did that last week on my birthday because that was my birthday wish. So if you didn't, fuck off. <laughs> if you want even more content, please visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash horrorqueers, where you can sign up for exclusive bonus episodes covering recent horror films like Fantasy Island and The Invisible Man. We'll also have an audio commentary on Hollow Man dropping very soon. Mm-hmm. Joe, mm-hmm. what are we talking about next week in advance of South by Southwest? Well, Trace, I am going to take you to space. Yay! For for what occasion? What's the occasion? <laughs> so, a couple of days after the episode drops is a Friday the 13th, folks. So we're going to celebrate, not with a good Friday the 13th oh, film. Oh, fuck off. <laughs> no, we're going to go to space and we're going to watch Jason X and we're going to talk about those goddamn robot nipples. I'm so excited for this. I unabashedly love Jason X. It's not a Zombievers thing where I'm like, oh, it's legitimately good and I like it. It's bad. But it's yeah, so it's funny. a disaster, but it's still enjoyable. Mm-hmm. I agree. Okay, well, on that note, then, we can cross out the blob. Mm-hmm. And cross out horror queers. Mm-hmm.
Creepy Disgusting Podcast Network, home of creepy and disturbing and terrifying creepy pastas, SCP archives, weekly full cast storytelling, horror queers, genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective, and the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews, listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.